My name is Dakota Franks. I was born in a small town. Grew up, fell in love. Started a business. To follow the path that would allow me to find my dreams. To you, I may seem like just the average Joe. The only thing odd about me is the fact that I'm almost seven feet tall. But trust me when I say that my life is very weird. When I was 12 years old, Something happened. And I got a glimpse into worlds much larger than our own. After I was brought back from the dead by none other than an archangel. Just before the angel brought me back, he introduced me to a little girl who may be my daughter from the future. I walked this path to try to understand my story and to help as many as I can along the way. With it, came adventures that are beyond imagination. Some that may even take me to the stars themselves. I'll understand if you don't believe me. Had I not been one to witness it all, I would think that somebody was going insane. Just give me a little bit of time to tell you my story. And you'll see why they call me the specialist of the strange. It's time for Archive on Four. The physicist and broadcaster Brian Cox looks back at the work of his all-time science hero, the science popularizer and American astronomer Carl Sagan. Sagan's landmark 13-part TV series Cosmos inspired a whole generation of young scientists, and to date it's been seen by more than 60 million people worldwide. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. During the summer of 1981, as a 13-year-old child, I spent 13 precious Wednesday evenings in front of the television in the company of the greatest science communicator that ever lived, 
Carl Sagan's cosmos opened my eyes to a universe filled with wonders, and I saw my future. I became a scientist on the evening of the 27th of May, 1981, as I left the shores of the cosmic ocean with Carl Sagan in his ship of the imagination. Before us is the cosmos on the grandest scale we know. We are far from the shores of Earth in the uncharted reaches of the cosmic ocean. Strewn like sea froth on the waves of space are innumerable faint tendrils of light, some of them containing hundreds of billions of suns. These are the galaxies drifting endlessly in the great cosmic dark. Although Carl Sagan died in 1996, it's my strong belief that his view of the cosmos and our place within it are more important today than ever before, because nobody has expressed the profound beauty and importance of science, the absolute necessity for rational thought, and the power of curiosity as he did. In this programme, we'll look back at Carl's life and work as both scientist and science communicator, and talk to those who knew him best. His love for science and his ultimately optimistic view of humanity's potential, if we could only conquer our propensity for irrationality, suffuses every clip. The size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home, the Earth. For the first time, we have the power to decide the fate of our planet and ourselves. This is a time of great danger, but our species is young and curious and brave. It shows much promise. In the last few millennia, we have made the most astonishing and unexpected discoveries about the cosmos and our place within it. I believe our future depends powerfully on how well we understand this cosmos in which we float like a mote of dust in the morning sky. In an interview with the BBC in 1981, just as Cosmos was fascinating thousands of wide-eyed kids like me, Carl described how he became fascinated by astronomy as a young kid growing up in Brooklyn. The question of what the stars were. I mean, you could see them. They were different from everything else in Brooklyn. But nobody seemed to be able to tell me what they were. They said, uh, they're lights in the sky, kid. And I could tell there were lights in the sky, but I had the sense there had to be some deeper explanation. I mean, just little lamps hanging from the sky, whatever for. How did they get there? What were they doing? One of the most ecstatic moments of my early uh, years was uh, when, with my first library card, I went to the library and asked for a book on stars. And after uh, some confusion about uh, Betty Grable and Clark Gable, I... Uh, got the right sort of book, and it said this absolutely astonishing fact. It said that the sun was a star, but close up. That the stars were suns, but impossibly far away. And suddenly the universe became much larger than Brooklyn. This is a stellar nursery, a place where stars are born. They condense by gravity from gas and dust until their temperatures become so high that they begin to shine. Such clouds mark the births of stars as others bear witness to their deaths. 
And after stars condense in the hidden interiors of interstellar clouds, what happens to them? The Pleiades are a loose cluster of young stars only 50 million years old. These fledgling stars are just being let out into the galaxy, still surrounded by wisps of nebulosity, the gas and dust from which they formed. Carl co-wrote Cosmos with his wife, Andrianne, and astrophysicist Stephen Soter. I met Anne recently and asked what was their ultimate ambition for this epic series. It is written to be understood by absolutely everyone, never to impress with his erudition, which was astonishing, and his scholarship, always to communicate. As long as there have been humans, we have searched for our place in the cosmos. Where are we? Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Seen by a staggering 60 million people worldwide to date, Cosmos has not lost its appeal for a new generation, almost 30 years after its initial broadcast. There's no demographic, there's no profile of who likes Cosmos. It debuted on iTunes last summer for the first time, no fanfare, not a single ad. And it was the number one nonfiction television series for 36 days. <laughs> and so I mean, I, I'm sure that there were people who loved it earlier and seen it earlier, but I think the vast majority of the people who, who wanted to download it were people who'd never encountered it before. But what is it about astronomy that captures the imagination of so many, generation after generation? Astronomy is, I think, the oldest science. If you look at the ancient medieval curriculum, the trivium and the quadrivium, you find astronomy in there, but uh, none of the other sciences. Astronomy speaks to us. It's very ancient. Uh, the contemplation of astronomy led through the work of Kepler and Newton to modern physics and uh, essentially to much of, uh, of modern science. Uh, and people, because of the connection of astronomy with the issues of cosmic perspective, where we are, who we are, where we come from, I think astronomy is exactly the right science to uh, begin interesting lay people. One of the unique aspects of Cosmos remains its universal appeal. It's as fascinating and fresh to me today as it was 28 years ago when I first saw it. The thing about Cosmos was that we wanted to take the television science series out of the ghetto of what is the United States public television, where you knew that the audience that was tuning in already knew a great deal and was already predisposed to love what you were going to do. We wanted to attract people who had no inkling that they could ever find this interesting or, as they wrote and continue to write, countless times that they could understand these concepts. Some 15 billion years ago, our universe began with the mightiest explosion of all time. The universe expanded, cooled, and darkened. Energy condensed into matter, mostly hydrogen atoms. And these atoms accumulated into vast clouds, rushing away from each other that would one day become the galaxies. 
Within these galaxies, the first generation of stars was born, kindling the energy hidden in matter, flooding the cosmos with light. Hydrogen atoms that made suns and starlight. Cosmos is both informative and moving, much more than a mere TV documentary describing the wonders of the night sky. It's a celebration of the human journey and a love letter to science itself. This unique emotional richness came in part from the unprecedented three-year collaboration between Carl and Anne at home shortly after their marriage. Anne describes the writing process with real fondness. We would write separately. Obviously, I couldn't do the, the, the science that was his, but uh, we would divvy up the chapters or the episodes or the sequences and then we would separate, uh, and I would go to my office, and I could see Carl loved to work outside by, we have a waterfall where we live, and he would sit by the waterfall, never used a computer, only dictation machines, occasionally longhand writing. He would sit at this table, and I could see him working all day long, and, and he could see me. In fact, he would be so lost in what he was doing that... I once saw a deer walk up to him, and it, the deer looked like he was re looking over Carl's shoulder, trying to read what he was writing. And it was before cell phones with cameras, and I didn't have one there. But it was kind of like a, a magical image. At the end of the day, we would exchange what we had as a kind of love offering. And I remember the greatest happiness is like when I could produce that fantastic laugh, that joyful laugh of excitement, of like, wow, in him, and he the same in me. It was just thrilling to work with him. There are many different kinds of galaxies of which ours might be just this one. There are, in fact, a hundred billion other galaxies, each of which contains something like a hundred billion stars. Think of how many stars and planets and kinds of life there may be in this vast and awesome universe. During the late 70s and early 80s, Carl Sagan became an instantly recognisable public figure, both through Cosmos and regular appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. His trademark delivery was relentlessly parodied, and perhaps uniquely among scientists, he even developed a catchphrase, billions and billions. Today, there's even a unit of measurement, a Sagan, which means a number greater than four billion. Measured this way, there are almost a hundred Sagan stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 400 billion suns. He didn't say it. Uh, he thought it was really funny. Johnny Carson, host of The Tonight Show, who was a tremendous fan of astronomy and, and a fan of Carl's, he used to say it in his imitation of Carl when he would dress up in the corduroy jacket and the turtleneck and a Carl wig. And so that's how it was. But he never said it. But it was kind of funny how even now people will say to me, billions and billions. Part of Sagan's genius for explanation was to reduce the biggest of concepts to a human scale and in doing so increase the sense of wonder. How, for example, could the vast age of the universe, billions of years, be described in an intuitive and natural way? The cosmic calendar compresses the local history of the universe into a single year. If the universe began on January 1st, it was not until May 
that the Milky Way formed. Other planetary systems may have appeared in June, July, and August, but our Sun and Earth, not until mid-September. Life arose soon after. We humans appear on the cosmic calendar so recently that our recorded history occupies only the last few seconds of the last minute of December 31st. In the vast ocean of time which this calendar represents, every person we've ever heard of lived somewhere in there. All those kings and battles, migrations and inventions, wars and loves, everything in the history books happens here in the last 10 seconds of the cosmic calendar. From its inception, Anne, Stephen and Carl intended Cosmos to be almost a parable, a call for our civilization to value science and above all, value itself. The three of us were very like-minded in that sense that we wanted to convey what was to us the greatest insight that modern science had been able to give us, and that was the oneness of everything, the oneness of life on Earth. And so in that sense of the oneness and the interrelatedness of everything, we felt that there was a kind of a profound tragedy in our society if someone a couple of hundred years from now were to look at us, they would probably look at us the way that we look at perhaps the Aztecs, just to give one example. You know, they were ripping the hearts out of living people. What was wrong? Didn't anybody think that was wrong? Well, I think if you were to come and you stand at a distance of a hundred years in the future and look at us, you would say, well, they had a, a society that was entirely dependent on science and high technology. And yet the understanding of science, of its values, its methodology, was confined to a tiny few. And so everyone depended on the output of science and technology, but most people just compartmentalized them into a tiny place inside instead of integrating it into their complete perspective. And so we, we felt from the start in conceptualizing the whole series that this had to be a kind of a complete view both of the history, of the social conditions, of how we found our coordinates in space and time. And you could only do that if you were willing to talk about every aspect of human experience. By juxtaposing humanity's fragility and overwhelming smallness with the vast expanse of the cosmos, Sagan was able to create a feeling of unity and value for our civilization. This theme is most powerfully expressed in a unique photograph taken at his suggestion by the Voyager 1 spacecraft in 1990, 23 years after it left its home planet as it glanced back at the Earth from beyond the orbit of Neptune. At four billion miles, the most distant image of our home world ever taken, the pale blue dot picture. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, Every king and peasant, 
every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Carl Sagan emphasised our immense value here on our pale blue dot, but he was also convinced that there must be others out there in the cosmos and was a passionate advocate for the search for other civilizations. Welcome to the planet Earth, a place with blue nitrogen skies, oceans of liquid water, cool forests, soft meadows, a world positively rippling with life. In the cosmic perspective, it is, for the moment, unique. The only world in which we know with certainty that the matter of the cosmos has become alive and aware. There must be many such worlds scattered through space, but our search for them begins here, with the accumulated wisdom of the men and women of our species, acquired at great cost over a million years. Being a working scientist, Sagan didn't want to base his convictions merely on opinion and was actively engaged in the search for proof of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, a programme that became known as SETI. There are a hundred billion galaxies and a billion trillion stars. Why should this modest planet be the only inhabited world? To me, it seems far more likely that the cosmos is brimming over with life and intelligence. SETI sounds like science fiction, but it uses a well-understood technology to search the night sky for signals of intelligence. We do not expect an advanced technical civilization on any other planet of our solar system. If they were only a little behind us, 10,000 years, say, they would have no advanced technology at all. And if they were only a little ahead of us, we who are already exploring the solar system, then they should be here by now. To communicate with other civilizations, our technology must reach across not merely interplanetary distances, but interstellar distances. Ideally, the method should be inexpensive, so that a huge amount of information could be sent and received at very little cost. It should be fast, so an interstellar dialogue is eventually possible. It ought to be obvious, so that any technical civilization, no matter what its evolutionary path, will discover it early. Surprisingly, there is such a method. It's called radio astronomy. When he first urged the scientific community to listen for the signals from extraterrestrial life forms, Sagan, and other early pioneers such as the astronomer Frank Drake, was not taken seriously. But by 1982, he had persuaded 70 scientists, including seven Nobel Prize winners, to sign a letter in the journal Nature advocating SETI. Partly as a result of Sagan's work, SETI is now mainstream science. Dr Seth Shostak a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, speaks about Carl's influence on the field. 
I think that in the beginning there was some skepticism about whether this was a legitimate form of inquiry. Keep in mind that SETI is not science in the traditional sense where you set up an hypothesis. You say, okay, I believe this is true. Here's my theory. I'm going into the lab. I'll do an experiment. And either it will confirm the theory or what's actually more interesting is if it falsifies the theory. In other words, if the results are not compatible with my idea, then I've got to start again. Well, with SETI, you can't prove that the aliens are not out there. All you can do is hope to trip across some proof that they are. So it's really more exploration than traditional science. So that gave it a slightly different flavor, if you will, in the beginning. But Sagan recognized that, you know, the universe was, after all, chock-a-block with real estate. And he was also involved in those early efforts to try and find life on Mars and so forth and so on. So he was interested in the idea of life beyond Earth and the idea there might be intelligent life. Well, that seemed completely reasonable to him. And he explained why that was reasonable. And he, more than probably anyone, made the subject legitimate among scientists. There are some 400,000 million suns in the Milky Way galaxy alone and uh, probably a comparable number of planets. There are thousands of millions of other galaxies uh, like the Milky Way. What's the chance that uh, of whatever that number is, uh, 10 billion trillion suns, that ours by accident is the only one with an inhabited planet? It uh, sounds like the rankest conceit. And how much more likely is it that the universe is burgeoning, over, overflowing with life? Sagan would have loved to detect signals from a distant civilization in his lifetime. But sadly, even today we hear only silence from the stars. In the absence of evidence, Sagan imagined what it might be like for us to detect transmissions from space in his novel Contact, turned into a film starring Jodie Foster. Sometimes. Two, three, five, seven. Those are all prime numbers. And there's no way that's a natural phenomenon. It doesn't make any sense. The system is too Zero. young. Well, maybe maybe they didn't grow up there. Maybe they're just visiting. I don't know. Okay, so spacecraft? No, this system is full of debris. It would get clobbered. Well, not if they used their laser blasters and photon torpedoes. That's not funny, Willie. Well, how else are we going to explain it's it? That's what you're talking about. about Willie's right. If, if we go public with this and we're wrong, that's it. It's, it's over. We're cooked. On one hand, we've argued that if even a small fraction of technical civilizations learn to live with themselves and their potential for self-destruction, then there should by now be enormous numbers of them in the galaxy. On the other hand, despite claims about UFOs and ancient astronauts, there's no credible evidence that the Earth has been visited now or ever. But isn't this a contradiction? If the nearest civilization is, say, uh, 200 light years away, it would take them only 200 years to get from there to here at the speed of light. Even if they were traveling a thousand times slower than that, beings from a nearby civilization could have come here during the tenure of human beings on the Earth. So why aren't they here? There's many possible answers. One is that maybe we're the first. Some technical civilization has to be first to emerge in the history of the galaxy. Or maybe all technical civilizations promptly destroy themselves. That seems to me very unlikely. Or maybe there's some problem with interstellar spaceflight that we've been too dumb to figure out. Or maybe they are here, but uh, in hiding because of some ethic of non-interference with emerging civilizations. We might imagine them curious and dispassionate, 
watching us to determine whether this year again we managed to avoid self-destruction. But there's another explanation which is consistent with everything else we know, and that's that it's a big cosmos. If a great many years ago an advanced interstellar spacefaring civilization emerged 200 light years away, why would they come here? They would have no reason to think there was something special about the Earth. There are no signs of human technology, not even our radio transmissions, which uh, have had time to go 200 light years. From their point of view, all nearby planetary systems might seem equally attractive for exploration. In the absence of signals from other civilizations, Sagan convinced NASA to send our own message in a bottle to the stars. Attached to each of the Voyager spacecraft, currently the most distant man-made objects from Earth, is a record containing the sights and sounds of Earth. Anne was given the task of overseeing the assembly of our message to the cosmos. This is, to me, pure Carl Sagan, because it's that idea that we don't have to have a scientific self or a, a technological self and a human self, that science is human that science is what we do, and that you can put them all together in one experience. And I'm so proud of the Voyager record because it contains messages within the message. Carl's great laugh is on that record. But then the sound of a kiss, the very first words of a mother to her newborn baby. Oh, come on now. And the brainwaves and vital signs of a meditation by a woman who had just fallen madly in love. The contents of this record will be preserved for more than a thousand million years. Now, once you have that extent of time, it is possible that it, in fact, will be intercepted, and then it seemed to us appropriate to say something about uh, who we are, what our feelings are, where we are, what our aspirations were. And uh, some of those emotional things are uh, conveyed, we think, by no means more satisfactory than music. In 1983, Carl and Anne made two programmes for the BBC called Music from a Small Planet in which they described how they chose the music that they felt best represented the hopes, fears and dreams of the people of Earth. That was a selection from the second Brandenburg Concerto of Johann Sebastian Bach, and it is the uh, composition which begins the musical portion of the Voyager interstellar record. In uh, late summer and early fall 1977, two remarkable spacecraft, Voyagers 1 and 2, were launched from uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida on a mission which has by now taken them through the system of Jupiter, its rings and its moons, through the system of Saturn, its rings and its moons. These spacecraft are uh, now on their way uh, towards the orbit of Uranus, which they will uh, re reach in 1986. The spacecraft will eventually leave the solar system behind and uh, enter into the regime of interstellar space, the space between the stars. On each of these spacecraft is a golden disk affixed to the side, and uh, this disk is a phonograph record, a uh, 
set of messages of greetings from the inhabitants of the earth to other beings evolved on other worlds of other suns. Any beings who intercept this record have uh, found the Voyager spacecraft in the depths of interstellar space with its transmitters long since uh, decayed. These will have to be very advanced uh, beings indeed. They will probably pull the spacecraft uh, to pieces to try to understand something about its makers, and they will certainly have an excellent grasp of our uh, science and uh, technology, something of our mathematics, our measurement conventions, many things of that sort. But how much will they know about about us, about what we're really like, about what we feel, how we are? To communicate that, uh, we thought it was important to uh, send music. Music is a way of expression of human feelings, desires, passions, hopes, and uh, even if there is very little chance that they will fully understand what the music means, we thought a fair representation of what humans are about requires us to send music. Anne and Cal chose music from every culture, from Chuck Berry to Beethoven, from Stravinsky to Peruvian wedding songs. Songs from China, India, and the Navajo Indians, and the panpipes of the Solomon Islanders are all waiting on the disc to be played once more, perhaps in a billion years. Sounds of the Earth transported across the cosmos by our first messenger to the stars. The origin of modern uh, mathematics, science, technology, I think can all be uh, traced fairly directly to uh, our ancestors wondering about uh, the nature and apparent movements of, uh, of the stars. And uh, celestial bodies have, have also, of course, uh, inspired artists uh, of all stripes. Well, here's an opportunity for us to uh, reverse the process and return some art and science, music and technology back to the stars from the Earth. We uh, wanted to be sure that there was uh, some satisfactory representation of uh, music from the Soviet Union, but we wanted something that maybe the Soviets would themselves feel was uh, representative and appropriate, and so uh, I uh, made a uh, request to a scientific colleague of mine in Moscow, and I later discovered that this request was taken very seriously. It went clear up to the top of the Soviet uh, scientific hierarchy, and apparently, uh, and the uh, response came back to us, but unfortunately much too late to implement, that we should use a piece called uh, Moscow Nights, which in my opinion is kind of Soviet Montavani, uh, highly non-controversial and highly uninteresting. But in any case, uh, we, we couldn't uh, consider that because of the timescales. Instead, we uh, came upon uh, a, a wonderful piece by a men's chorus in uh, Soviet Georgia. Of course, we wanted to know what the song was actually saying before we sent it. And so we began a search for someone who could interpret it for us. On the very last day uh, that we were, in fact, mastering the record, someone produced a Georgian 
who came by, listened to the song, and gave us a very vague and almost uh, kind of innocuous interpretation of what it was about. After the spacecraft left the Earth, sometime after, we discovered that in fact, this was a song in which the men of Georgia were exhorting the audience to kill the landlord, not at all what we had thought it was to be. And so inadvertently, we ended up with a much more realistic picture of life on Earth. Sagan was a passionate advocate for the exploration of space, with robotic spacecraft like Voyager, but also in person. For him, it seemed inconceivable that we should wish to remain on our home planet, vulnerable as we are in a dangerous universe. Convinced that eventually human explorers will visit our nearest celestial neighbour, Carl recorded a message for future explorers, which was placed aboard the Mars Phoenix lander, now resting on the surface of Mars, waiting for the first pioneers. Hi, I'm Carl Sagan. This is a place where I often work in Ithaca, New York, near Cornell University. Maybe you can hear in the background a 200-foot uh, waterfall right nearby, which uh, is probably, I would guess, a rarity on Mars, even in times of high technology. Science and science fiction have done a kind of uh, dance over the last century, particularly with respect to Mars. The scientists make a finding, it inspires uh, science fiction writers to write about it, and uh, a host of young people read the science fiction and are excited and inspired to become scientists to find out more about Mars, which they do, which then feeds again into another generation of science fiction and science. And uh, that sequence has played a major role in our uh, present ability to get to Mars. It certainly was uh, an important factor in the life of Robert Goddard, the American rocketry pioneer who I think more than anyone else paved the way for our actual ability to go to Mars. And it, uh, it certainly played a role in my scientific development. I don't know why you're on Mars. Maybe you're there because we've recognized we have to carefully move small asteroids around to avert the possibility of one impacting the Earth with catastrophic consequences. And while we're up in near-Earth space, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to Mars. Or uh, maybe we're on Mars because we recognize that if there are human communities on many worlds, the chances of us being rendered extinct by some catastrophe on one world is, uh, is much less. Or uh, maybe we're on Mars because of the magnificent science that could be done there. The, the gates of the wonder world are opening in our time. Or maybe we're on Mars because we have to be, because there is a deep nomadic impulse built into us by the evolutionary process. We come, after all, from hunter-gatherers, and for 99.9% .9 of our tenure on Earth, we've been wanderers, and uh, the next place to wander to is Mars. But whatever the reason you're on Mars is, I'm glad you're there, and I wish I was with you.
For me, Carl Sagan's most important message, a message which suffuses all of his writings, is that the one universal language is science. Extraterrestrial beings will have a different biology, a different culture, a different language. How could we possibly understand their messages? Is there in any sense a cosmic Rosetta Stone? I believe there is. All the technical civilizations in the cosmos, no matter how different they are, must have one language in common, the language called science. The laws of nature are everywhere the same. Every chemical element has a specific signature in the spectrum. So there are identical patterns in the light of a candle flame on Earth and in the light of a distant galaxy. The intelligent beings on every world will sooner or later understand the laws of nature. Someday, perhaps soon, a message from the depths of space may arrive on our small world. If we wish to understand it, we first have to understand science. The importance of democratizing science, of building a society in which every citizen recognizes the value of science and understands or at least knows of its great and wonderful discoveries, was perhaps the conviction that motivated Carl Sagan the most. Never does he sound more passionate than when he speaks of the value, power and vital role that science must play in our society if we are to survive and prosper. It's extremely important for ordinary people to understand science, to feel comfortable with it, to remove this sense of awful alienation which, uh, with regard to science which has uh, occurred throughout the world. I mean, on the one hand, we live in a society which is dominated by science and technology, where our future clearly depends on science and technology and yet in which uh, very few people understand science and technology. It's a clear prescription for disaster. How can we influence the uh, important decisions about our future, which involve science and technology in an intimate way, if we don't understand it ourselves, if our uh, elected representatives don't understand it? So it seems to me that, that making people feel that science is accessible, that they can understand what it's about, that they can have some control over their own future, is very important. And then on the other hand, the, uh, uh, there's the fact that science approaches many of the deepest questions which have, humans have always wondered about. There is no human culture which doesn't have a creation myth. We've always wondered about where we come from. Well, at this moment, in, in these few decades, science is achieving at least the glimmerings, in some cases uh, much more substantial than that, of the answers to questions about the origin of the human species, the origin of life, the origin of the Earth, the Sun, the galaxy, the origin of the universe as a whole, these glorious questions, the deepest questions humans have ever asked on, in many respects, are on the verge of being answered. Well, people everywhere are interested in, uh, in what those answers are, what the approaches are, and yet they don't seem to be available. They should be shouted from the rooftops and declaimed from the pulpits, but uh, that's not happening. So, uh, Cosmos is an attempt to, to do that as well. One of my favourite moments in Cosmos is a scene inside a computer-generated library of Alexandria, the great repository of ancient knowledge lost in the 4th century AD when the library was destroyed. 
Sagan argues that because scientific knowledge was retained by an elite and not the preserve of the many, there was nobody to defend the library when the barbarians arrived at the gates. Science and learning in general were the preserve of the privileged few. The vast population of the city had not the vaguest notion of the great discoveries being made within these walls. How could they? The new findings were not explained or popularized. The progress made here benefited them little. Science was not part of their lives. The discoveries in mechanics, say, or steam technology, mainly were applied to the perfection of weapons, to the encouragement of superstition, to the amusement of kings. Scientists never seemed to grasp the enormous potential of machines to free people from arduous and repetitive labor. The great intellectual achievements of antiquity had few practical applications. Science never captured the imagination of the multitude. There was no counterbalance to stagnation, to pessimism, to the most abject surrender to mysticism. So when, at long last, the mob came to burn the place down, there was nobody to stop them. Remarkably, Carl Sagan was not universally appreciated within his own profession. There was an unease at the amount of time he spent making Cosmos, and perhaps no small amount of jealousy amongst some of his colleagues. As there is a kind of bias in the scientific community about anyone who steps outside the priesthood to convey uh, to the larger public the wonders of science. This view was echoed by Sir Bernard Lovell, director of the Jodrell Bank Observatory, speaking in 1981. He must have spent a tremendous lot of time on that series, and uh, the query is bound to arise whether a man can do that and still carry his professional job. I must say, if a member of my staff um, had spent uh, so much time in producing a series like that, uh, I would be bound to feel, and I would certainly know, that, that he might well have spent a good deal of that time uh, doing his research, which was his proper job. Well, I, I hate to say this, but it's, the facts are that many other astronomers regarded Carl Sagan's work with a certain amount of almost disdain. Seth Shostak again. And that was very unfair. A lot of that was simply, if you will, sour grapes. They, they would hear Sagan talk about perhaps their own area of research or some area of research that they knew about. And they would say, you know, this guy's on television getting the accolades for this work, and I'm the one who's actually doing it. So there was this kind of uh, sort of a resentment, and I think that that's, that's attached to anyone who is successful at popularization. The thought being, I'm doing the work, and, and you know everybody's talking to you about it. What they failed to recognize, of course, at least at a conscious level, was that Sagan was in some sense paying their salaries by getting the American public interested in space and astronomy he was ensuring that you know NASA budgets were ample, that there was money going to these fields. In fact, this popularization was doing them a lot of good. But there's this natural human reaction to be resentful. Carl Sagan did, in fact, have an impeccable scientific record, although this proved not to be enough to facilitate his election to the prestigious U.S. National Academy of Sciences. 
perhaps someone who had undoubtedly contributed less to the well-being of society, felt that Sagan's fame was just too great an assault on their ego. Carl was put up for membership by someone. He, someone wanted him to be a member. He didn't even, had, had nothing to do with it. And uh, he, he was blackballed. And that was painful just because it was kind of an unsolicited slap in the face. But I remember Carl saying that day, reporters calling from all over, a big story in the New York Times, and Carl saying, science is its own reward. My personal satisfaction is much greater in doing science than in uh, popularizing it. I enjoy popularizing science, but um, it doesn't hold a candle to uh, the uh, exhilaration of um, looking at a new world for the first time in the history of the human species. There are images from whatever it is, Eo or Titan or whatever, for the first time. You have no idea what it's going to be like, and there it is. Or to... uh, understand the physical or chemical processes on on some other planet or the nature of the material in the interstellar medium or whatever it is that, that, that you're working on, uh, there is an enormous satisfaction at understanding. And uh, I just uh, find that much more exhilarating than the popularization of science. But popularization of science, I think, is uh, socially very important, and uh, it certainly is fun as well, and I, I enjoy doing both. Did he find it difficult to find the balance between science, actually doing science, like working on Voyager, working on Viking, you know, those really being a a big part of those missions, and then having his time sort of taken away in a way? He loved everything that he did, and I thought that he had perfect pitch in terms of how much to do of one and the other. Mm. He did author or co-author 600 published, peer-reviewed scientific papers. He was working on these spacecraft missions. He was working on nuclear winter. He was working on global warming. Uh, He was creating tholins and naming them in his laboratory at Cornell. He was teaching. And at the same time, he was going to naturalization ceremonies where people who, who wanted to become citizens of the United States would come to be naturalized. And he would do that to inspire them to question authority. And, you know, he'd say, this is your most important responsibility as a citizen. Give these passionate, brilliant speeches. He would go to the local school district in Ithaca, New York, uh, where we lived, and he would, he would go to the, the science teachers on the eve of the first day of school and give them a pep talk about the sacred duty and the, the great privilege they had to be touching these minds. And, we, and it wasn't just all aphorisms and homilies. It was also you know, riveting stuff about science and nature. Amazing. He, and, of course, he did all of these things. No one knew he was doing it, but he was completely conscientious. As a 13-year-old watching Cosmos all those years ago, I remember vividly the frightening and yet ultimately uplifting 13th and last episode which perhaps stands as the clearest and most powerful expression of Sagan's message. If it were down to me, it would be part of the national curriculum. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before thee life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that thou mayest live, thou and thy seed. My 
favourite episode of Cosmos is the 13th episode. I know it's a famous episode, but the reason is that it's it's still a science documentary, but it's also, it's a powerful message. And at that time, it was it was nuclear war. It was, right. was it 1980. It went on the air in 1980, so it was 1979, 1980, yeah. just around there, yeah. So now that, that threat seems to have receded somewhat, but replaced by climate right. change. Um, well... Climate change is in cosmos. Global yes. warming is in cosmos in 1980. Yeah, yeah. And, and also I think powerfully linked to Venus, isn't it? I think you make that point in series. That was his PhD thesis yeah. on the greenhouse effect on Venus and warning about global warming, uh, just among the first to sound the alarm. Had we destroyed our home... What had we done to the earth? There had been many ways for life to perish at our hands. We had poisoned the air and water. We had ravaged the land. Perhaps we had changed the climate. Could it have been a plague or nuclear war? In the late 70s and early 80s, as I remember well, nuclear war was a very real and present danger to our civilization. Given Sagan's passionate belief in the value of humanity, it's no surprise that Cosmos was suffused with disdain for our collective behaviour that threatened the very existence of life on Earth. I'm especially concerned about uh, the threat of nuclear war, which I think uh, is an extremely real and imminent danger to all the inhabitants of the Earth, and in particular with uh, 15,000 nuclear warheads poised in the United States and the Soviet Union and to a tiny extent in Britain uh, and France to uh, to be launched and reach their targets in 15 minutes that uh, the Earth is sitting on a powder keg with uh, lots of people waving uh, matches and uh, candle flames around. And uh, I'm very concerned that the consequences of nuclear war are not more widely understood. Everyone knows it's madness. Every country has an excuse. There's a dreary chain of causality. The Germans were working on the bomb at the beginning of World War II, so the Americans had to make one first. If the Americans had one, the Russians had to have one. Then the British, the French, the Chinese, the Indians, the Pakistanis, Many nations now collect nuclear weapons. They're easy to make. You can steal fissionable material from nuclear reactors. Nuclear weapons have almost become a home handicraft industry. The conventional bombs of World War II were called blockbusters. Filled with 20 tons of TNT, they could destroy a city block. All the bombs dropped on all the cities of World War II amounted to some two million tons of TNT, two megatons. Coventry and Rotterdam, Dresden and Tokyo, all the death that rained from the skies between 1939 and 1945. A hundred thousand blockbusters, two megatons. Today, two megatons is the equivalent of a single thermonuclear bomb, one bomb with the destructive force of the Second World War. The energy contained in these weapons, genies of death, patiently awaiting the 
rubbing of the lamps, totals far more than 10,000 megatons, but with the destruction concentrated efficiently, not over six years, but over a few hours. A blockbuster for every family on the planet. A World War II every second for the length of a lazy afternoon. I often wonder how Carl Sagan would have assessed our progress towards a more rational world at the close of the first decade of the 21st century. Whilst politicians and society are certainly paying lip service to the importance of science, a real revolution in our attitude to and value of science education and research still, in my opinion, evades us. I'm sure his optimism would still shine like a beacon but I suspect it would be tempered with disappointment. I think perhaps he would be disappointed indeed by the fact that uh, in many ways the space program stalled. Uh, it, it was the intention that we would get to Mars long before the beginning of the 21st century. That hasn't happened. Um, a lot of the research has sort of uh, dissipated. After the Apollo mission, the budgets for NASA went, went down considerably. I, I don't think this is the way he saw the future. Uh, it's also the case that he was very hopeful about SETI. He was asked in the last year of his life, um, what would you like to see happen before you die? And one of the things he very explicitly named was the detection of extraterrestrial intelligence. That hasn't happened. But I think the thing that might dismay him the most would probably be the continued lack of science literacy, uh, in, both in America and probably elsewhere as well, but you know, he wrote uh, he wrote a book, The Demon Haunted World, that addressed this. The fact that we're very uh, quick to adopt the ideas of pseudoscience because they have a certain emotional appeal, or there's some romance in that, and that we're not willing always to look at things with the uh, the practiced and educated eye of science. We are the legacy of 15 billion years of cosmic evolution. We have a choice. We can enhance life and come to know the universe that made us, or we can squander our 15 billion year heritage in meaningless self-destruction. What happens in the first second of the next cosmic year depends on what we do here and now with our intelligence and our knowledge of the cosmos. Carl Sagan died on the 20th of December 1996. It's one of my greatest regrets that I never met him, but I had the privilege and immense luck to be 13 years old and sat in front of the TV set on an early summer day in 1981 when Cosmos was broadcast. How many other scientists in the world today making the discoveries that routinely change the lives of millions had their eyes open to the beauty of the cosmos and their minds open to rational thought by Carl Sagan. It's my strong belief that in our world today, where the value of science is increasingly judged by its short-term economic impact, Carl Sagan's legacy is more valuable than ever. Our loyalties are to the species and the planet. We speak for Earth. Our obligation to survive and flourish is owed not just to ourselves, but also to that cosmos ancient and vast from which we spring.
Carl Sagan, A Personal Voyage, was presented by Brian Cox. The producer was Alexandra Feacham. After the news, rivalry between Ash and Joan is becoming intense and the dotty Lord Emsworth is keeping a shotgun by his side in case of midnight marauders. It's all happening in our serial Something Fresh by P.G. Woodhouse. First, a look ahead to next week. Returning to BBC Radio 4. The music group is uh, like a book group, but with music instead of books. Phil Hammond and his three guests each bring one track to discuss. It's quite difficult focusing just down on one track, and then you have to justify it to the rest of the group. You can tell an awful lot about a person from their musical choice. That's The Music Group, on Tuesday at half past one. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's very moving, uh, sometimes it's just a bit embarrassing. (laughs) 